Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. When it comes to how you manage your finances, are you a hoarder, a cash splasher, an ostrich, or an anxious investor? We find out how psychology can influence how good or bad you are with money. If you're determined to declutter in the new year, could a trip to a car boot sale be more profitable and less hassle than selling items on eBay? And Britain's ticking social care time bomb. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast on personal finance. I'm James Pickford, Deputy FT Money Editor, and I'll be giving you this week's money news in downloadable form. Your psychological relationship with money influences the decisions you make about how to spend, save or invest. But are you making the right choices? For example, are you always the person who offers to pay in a restaurant at the end of a meal with friends? Earn a fortune in finance but never spend any money on new clothes? Perhaps you rate yourself as an investor, but could your frequent trading tip over into a gambling addiction? It can be hard to recognise potentially damaging patterns of behaviour, but this week FT Money is exploring the issue with an online quiz to determine which of six common financial personality types you could be. Joining me to discuss the issues around this is the FT's Naomi Rovnik. Naomi, welcome to The Money Show. We'll come on to the details of the six common personality types shortly, but to start off, why should listeners care about which one they are? Well, you may think that your finances are all sorted. I mean, I'm somebody who's spent a long time working on the personal finance desk of the FT. I think I'm good at things. But when I spoke to a range of psychologists who specialise in the psychology of money, which is a funny area between economics and sociology or occupational psychology, I found that I do have a deep-seated problem, actually. I'm what you would call a social value spender. I think everything's sorted. I don't get into debt. But if I'm up, if I'm down, if I'm in, if I'm out, I'll buy myself something or I'll buy a friend something. And that's made me really focus on, actually, I'm making a mistake here. And lots and lots of people may have very deep-seated things, perhaps, it sounds silly, but perhaps from their childhood or perhaps from just how they were brought up or how they view the world that money is using them rather than they're using it. They could be really, really ripe for um, putting their money in the stock market. It could be absolutely the best time to do that. But they could have security issues that make them hang on to the money in a way that needs their retirement later in life. Is there a point here that it's much easier to manipulate money or to send money around because of the digital advances that have been made? It is. And it's also easier for money to manipulate us or commerce to manipulate us. You know, the online bank never closes. The You can check your stock portfolio 24 hours a day. The online shops never close. So if you have a tendency towards 
investing too much, investing too little, spending too much, buying too many gifts for friends, then, you know, all doors are open all hours of the day. And the only real check on our behaviour now, it used to be Sunday trading hours, stockbrokers being closed at the weekend, etc. The only real check on our behaviour now has to come from ourselves. So we have to be so much more self-aware. So tell us a little bit bit about the financial personality types we've identified. There's the anxious investor. Yes, that may resonate with some of our listeners. So Adrian Furnham, who's a professor of psychology at UCL, who specialises in the psychology of money and behaviour around money and work, designed a quiz for us, which you can do online on ft.com. And he designed a set of questions. I won't give too much away, but your answers to them will tell you which personality type, which a range of psychologists have defined over the years, is more like you. An anxious investor is somebody who thinks they're they're in the markets, they're trading, they're a bit of an expert. But in fact, they are not dissimilar in terms of their their brain chemistry to somebody who's sitting in a casino hall. They're getting a buzz out of anticipating a trade. They're making a trade. Perhaps it doesn't go so well. They become anxious about it. They think, oh, I should do something else. And in a way, they even if they're very lucky, they might not beat the markets mm. over time. It's better to actually have a lot of discipline over yourself when you're investing, according to the people who specialise in and write about this. You should have rules, you know, rules about stop losses, for example, rules about how often you trade, rules about how and you check your portfolio and rules about not being motivated by the news. I mean, I feel silly again saying this as somebody in the news industry, but being motivated by news or panic or euphoria can make you buy high and sell low. Mm. And that is shortchanging there's itself. Another, there's another one here which is of interest to, to me. I think we probably all recognise it. The hoarder. Yes. Hoarders are people who are much more financially comfortable perhaps than they believe they are. So they may have teenage children and they may have clothes that are older than those teenage children. They may drive around in a battered old car simply because they fear their bank account balance getting smaller. Now, that's not always a bad thing, but you should be investing your money as well as saving it. And particularly earlier on in life, when perhaps you know the least about investing and you feel the cushion is smallest. In fact, for millennials, investing now really will grow the amount of money they have at their disposal at retirement. So saying, I'm not wealthy enough to invest is actually a bit of a hoarder's characteristic. It's so much of a primal instinct that researchers have even seen it in monkeys and people love certainty but if you allow your love of certainty to stop you investing money or you know contributing to a pension which is in itself invested in the markets then you could end up with the poverty that you feared as a hoarder all along. Intrigued to know what financial personality I'm going to turn out to be so (laughs) thank you very much there to Naomi Rovnik. You can read the full FT Money cover feature which for financial personality type are you online at ft.com slash money and you can try our interactive quiz at ft.com slash money as well could a car boot sale be the answer to your new year decluttering impulse some money show listeners might turn their noses up at selling unwanted items in this way but it could be much easier than listing them on online auction websites our money mentor Lindsay cook joins me to reveal some trading secrets Welcome to The Money Show, Lindsay. You've been following the fortune of two actually fairly well-heeled friends who have taken to the car boot circuit. Give us some insider tips into how to do this. You have to remember, first of all, that we spend, or people spend, £1.5 each year at British car boot sales. They're not low rent. And in fact, the biggest secret is keep your good stuff away hidden until the dealers are finished because they will come in and try and buy your 
jewellery for tuppence. So you get there, 8 o'clock is usually the starting time. 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock is starting time. You need a folding table. You put your stuff out. You lay it out as shops do. You are trying to entice people. Anything with a bit of value that's small, keep away, because unfortunately some people go to car boot sales just to steal. It's quite a problem. So you're better off with two people. Get there early. Beware of the dealers because they'll take your best stuff if they can. And novices are so pleased to make their first sale, they'll give it away almost. And they'll then resell it for a higher price, is that the idea? Oh, absolutely, Um, yes. So how can I find out where car boot sales are happening near me and what are the costs involved typically? Typically, it's about £10. Mm. Go with somebody else, you can share a pitch. There's the cart boot sale calendar, which costs £3. Details are in the article. There's good ones in London. Battersea's well-favoured, but throughout the country, there are different ones. Most of them are outdoors, but a few are indoors, so you could go even at this time of year, but generally, I would suggest after we get a bit better weather. And weather is one of the things you have to worry about. You need to, if you're selling clothes, have some plastic covers, Put them on clothes hangers, on a rail if you can. Display them so they look a bit better than if they're bundled up like a jumble sale. Nowadays, because nobody gets free carrier bags, you need to have a lot of your own because people don't take their own to buy stuff. You need to, as I say, put things... Children's clothes, really good. Make sure they're well laundered, ironed, look good. What kinds of things sell well? Well, Children's clothes are very good. Gardening tools are very good. Vinyl records have done well recently, but, you know, it tends to be a certain generation and a certain type of music does better. Books don't do well at all, which is really a shame. You end up taking quite a lot, unless you've got a fairly recent hardback or a a really popular chiclet, you don't tend to sell books. Bric-a-brac doesn't do that well. People will buy most things, though. Old biscuit tins, you can sell those. (laughs) I know, you've eaten the biscuits, you can sell the biscuit tin. Jewellery, it tends to be cheap stuff that you've not worn for years, I would put. Clothes, women's clothes, designer, vintage clothes, do well, but know what you want for it. If you don't get the price, think in terms of selling it online later. With a car boot sale, you get the money straight away. You're not having to watch for a week to see if you've had the bids and things like that and then regret the fact that you priced and it wrongly. Yes, how do you, how, as a novice, would you approach pricing? Do you just look around at what other things are selling on, in other car boots? You can do a foray the week before and look at a car boot sale. My friend suggests going to your local charity shop. Mm. She, she goes to one in Kensington, which has more better quality suits and things like that and she gets an idea of what she can um, sell things for that's fantastic well thank you very much that was lindsay cook ft money's money mentor columnist and you can read her latest column secrets of the car boot sale now on ft.com money or in the ft weekend newspaper this saturday how we will pay for our care costs in old age is a topic we know many of our readers worry about. Whether it's your own care needs or those of an elderly parent, there's not much help from the state and the cost is extremely expensive. The political heat has been rising on the issue as problems in the care system put extra strain on the NHS. Jonathan Ely last week wrote in FT Money on the funding crisis in social care and how we might expect to pay for our care bills in future. His column was one of the most commented articles in FT Money last week. He joins me in the studio now. 
Jonathan, what's the nature of the problem here? Okay, well, the problem that you see on the 10 o'clock news every night is that beds are blocked in hospitals, i.e. elderly people medically fit to be discharged from hospital but can't be because there is nowhere for them to go. The reason there is nowhere for them to go is because there are not enough care home places and the reason for that is because the financial returns available to care home operators are now very, very poor and lots of them are closing their doors. The reason that is the case is because the funding system for social care, which is financed predominantly by individuals and by local councils rather than by the NHS, is in a state of some disrepair. And the reason that is the case, even though we know that uh, there's a big bulge in, in the numbers of elderly people on the way as the baby boomers get older, is because reforming care home financing is very, very hard. It involves lots of trade-offs and it will create winners and losers and therefore successive governments have done the obvious thing and kicked it into the long grass. So looking at some very high costs here, but also the topic seems to have hit a nerve with our FT subscribers. What kinds of comments have you been receiving on this article? Well, the interesting thing about comments that you receive at the foot of articles and via email is that, of course, you're never quite sure how old the commenting person is. But I suspect in this case, a lot of the people who've written in are people who are either approaching the age where they may need a care home or they know someone a family member perhaps who has and some of the comments as well suggest that they were alive in a bygone age so one person wrote in to say well surely the solution to bed blocking specifically is to have convalescence homes which are kind of like a halfway house yes. between a hospital and a care home and a convalescence is a whole very sort of 1950s uh, type concept it doesn't really exist now they just kick you out of hospital straight away and send you home another one was the idea of a consumption tax which which is another sort of very post-war concept. This reader wrote in and said, well, you know, I remember the days when luxury items like fur coats were taxed at 200%. And if you just sort of take a flick through the pages of how to spend it, there's plenty of inspiration in there for things that we could tax very highly to pay for care. Uh, that might seem far-fetched, but it does remind me of places like Singapore, for instance, where a car is deemed a luxury item and you pay 200% tax at least to register a car in Singapore. So perhaps that's not as outlandish as it sounds. Another reader said, well, why don't we look at how other countries have managed this problem? Because, I mean, ageing populations is hardly an issue that's unique to Britain. I happen to know that the committee for the Parliamentary Select Committee for uh, Local Governments and Communities did actually visit Germany recently to look at how they manage the problem of elderly care. And another one raised the issue of capital gains tax on the sale of primary residences, which, given the increases in house prices over the past 20 years, would, of course, raise a fortune, but it would be politically explosive. Mm. So just to sort of almost reverse, what, what was your feeling about how or the question, the choices that we faced about how these social care costs should be funded in future? Well, I did the journalistic cop-out of saying... Well, I don't have the answers, but I can at least ask the questions. I think it's easy to say what the answer is not. I think sort of piecemeal funding of raising council tax by a bit to fund care is really not going to raise anything like the sums that are required. And I also think that the sort of a savings solution that some have mooted for like a care ISA is also a bit of a non-starter. And the reason I think that is because most people would rather not think about getting Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or having a stroke. And therefore, it's very difficult psychologically to persuade them 
to save for it. And also, we have very low savings rates as it is. The average sort of annuity bought in Britain, the average pension pot saved privately, is about £25,000. And that's for something that people know is going to happen. They know they're going to retire. Three out of four people will not need to go into a care home. So trying to persuade them to save for that eventuality, I think, is a very tough ask. That leaves property wealth. Most people's single biggest asset is the home they live in. If they are going into a care home, by definition, they don't need that home anymore, so they should be forced to sell it. As you can imagine, there are all sorts of problems with that. Not only the moral question about whether people should be forced to sell their homes, but also the fact that property wealth is very unevenly distributed throughout the country. It's all very well if you've got a vicarage in Surrey. If you've got a council flat in Liverpool, it's less of a solution. And then there's general taxation. Well, nobody wants to pay more tax, so that's an issue straight away. Many people would say, well, I've paid tax and national insurance all my life. What was all that for? Why isn't my care funded? And the other is that it's potentially very regressive in the sense that everybody would pay tax and the people who would benefit most from that would be the better off who could then leave bigger legacies to their children because they don't have to sell their houses to fund care. So there are all sorts of issues with either of those options. The Dilnock Commission in 2011 tried to broke a middle ground where there was some contribution from the patient, if you like, but the contribution was capped. So you wouldn't get the situation you have at the moment where you face effectively limitless liability for your care. Those are quite a sensible set of reforms, I think. But the bad news is they're not due to come in until 2020. They're not on the statute yet. And a lot of the people I spoke to in the care industry are very sceptical that they will even be enacted in their current form. Mm, well, we, we shall see whether the politicians are able to do make any progress on this issue um, as the crisis continues. Thanks very much there to Jonathan Ely, Deputy Head of Lex. If you missed his column, you can read it online now at ft.com money. Have you got a story you'd like the FT Money team to follow up or a question to pose to our team of financial experts? We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at money at ft.com, tweet us at FT Money or comment on our articles online at ft.com slash money. The Money Show will be back next Thursday at the usual time. Goodbye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.